Okay, so this film was originally, it was originally filmed in August 2017. Um, and I guess, it, you know, when studios release, release a project, obviously before they send it to the public, they get, <clears throat> they get feedback from everyday Joes that they assemble to watch the thing, you know, based on demographics and all that stuff. They all, they work with like research firms who do that for them. Right. So anyway, apparently before they released it in theaters, they had done this, they had workshopped it, I guess, with some everyday Joes, uh, some test audiences, and it got panned by test, test audiences. So they held on to it. And I guess in holding on to it, they, you know, if I guess if a movie gets bad reviews before it's actually released from the test audience, I guess they have an opportunity to edit it in certain ways. That's what that's what I would assume, that they would be editing it in such a way to improve it and then release it again to test audiences to see if it's improved, if, if their opinion, if, if folks like it now or like it better. But anyway, um, yeah, so they, <laughs> so it was shot in 2017 and held and then kept being held. Um, apparently their uh, distributor just lost faith in the project altogether, which I didn't know that that was a thing, that a movie could be shot completely, edited completely, ready to go, and then the studio who bought it doesn't like it anymore or doesn't, doesn't think it'll make any money off it, and so just won't release it. Like, that seems petty. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so <clears throat> somehow or another, between 2017 and 2020, something happened to where whatever studio finally picked it up, which I think... No, it was the same studio. Sorry, 20th Century Studios lost faith in it and then I guess got faith again or got faith back in it um, and decided to release it in October of 2020. Um, And I'm guessing, you know what? I'm guessing a lot of, a lot of film studios and distributors tried to capitalize on us all being home and us all being willing to pay or many of us being willing to pay to watch something new. We weren't going to theaters. We were home more um, by choice, many of us, but not by choice for others. But anyway, most of us, we were home um, and yeah, eager to just consume a lot of things. Um, Netflix capitalized on that. Netflix has been ahead of the curve, to be honest. Um, always releasing a lot of new product every month, like a whole slate. Um, I can't call the I can't call the website that I always get the update about for what Netflix is releasing every month. But um, yeah, if you were so inclined, you could understand, you could see the slate of of material that um, or new shows and, and media that uh, Netflix was going to release from month to month. And so 
you know, obviously Netflix capitalized on the pandemic and people being home and they really grew. Amazon Studios really flourished um, under with the pandemic because, you know, those and between Amazon and Netflix, they were kind of like built to produce products as evidenced by all of the things that they have in their catalog right now. Some of which is like they have 20 of the same movie, both of them, but then they have a large variety. One, one thing that I do appreciate more about Netflix than I do about Amazon, although Amazon is coming up there is that I can get my Bollywood fix I can get my Nollywood fix for real in Netflix. I can get my, even though like the major films that they're marketing to or the major media that they're marketing to everyone, you know, the, the number one or the ones that they push to you on the, the homepage, even though those tend to lack diversity a lot um, in many instances, overall, I can get my Bollywood fix. I can get my Nollywood fix. I can get my um, Mexican, um, my Mexican soap operas. Um, I also have access to the shows I watched, the, the black shows I watched growing up, um, or the predominantly black casted shows that I watched growing up, um, from the United States. Like, and I can get, in addition to that on, um, Netflix, I can get my competition shows, which HBO Max is trying to jump in that too. Again, HBO Max is trying to have the shows that I watched when I was growing up, um, and the movies and things like that. HBO Max has Turner Classic Films, which, baby, that's where I live, right? So anyway, so, you know, the studio was like, all right, well, this tested poorly in 2017 when people had options. Um, <laughs> so maybe, maybe it's going to do better if we release it now during the pandemic when people are more open to different things. So they release it. And unfortunately, that didn't really change the reception of the film at all. It's panned by critics um, and didn't get a very high audience score. And in fact, let me just share. So it's right now, it's 6.1 right now. It's probably been this way. 6.1 out of 10 on IMDb. 65% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, which is not a high score. Barely above a half. Um, 66% of Google users liked this film. I, I, do I like this film? I find it entertaining. I don't think it's not a good film. It's not like I don't like it though. It's entertaining. Like as this scaredy cat, I am a huge scaredy cat, but I watched it because the scare for me, the reason why I watched it because the scare was based on racism. Like for real, like the whole premise of the movie is based in a, in a racist trope. It is. It is. So <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> so you can find it on HBO, um, HBO Max, which is where I found it. I think you actually can find it on HBO, not just HBO Max, but it stars, stars James Badge Dale as James Luzambra. I don't recall seeing him in anything. Um, Marin Ireland. Oh, that's her whole full name. Marin Ireland, who... She was the love interest in what's that? Oh shoot. What's that? The oh, the Academy show. 
Anyway, she you you've seen her before. She was in Oh my goodness. There's a fam- very famous trans man who recently who came out as trans and over the pandemic. Umbrella Academy. She was in the in Umbrella Academy and I'm still not remembering the famous trans man's name, but yeah, um Marin Ireland played the love interest of, I guess the trans man's character was supposed to be cis heteronormative, but a, a cis het woman, but a queer cis het woman. I don't know. Like, I actually don't know about the character. I think the the character is definitely queer, but the character that the queer actor that I'm talking about um, was playing is definitely not trans or the very, well, no, because the, the character's name was Vanya. Yeah. Um, which feels like a feminine name, but anyway, but I'm watching that show. It's interesting. Although they still definitely pass the paper bag test. They still don't have many lead characters. They're certainly one of their lead characters. She's black, but um, you know, paperback test. Um, but it's very entertaining. Um, it's an enjoyable series. Um, anyway, and they do have, um, brown characters in the show, certainly villains and non-villains, regular Joes. It's just, again, it does not, it's not hard it's not hard yet. It just feels so difficult for um, studios, even Netflix, to, you know, include more people of color in the main cast. Just difficult for them. Anyway, um, but yeah, back to Empty Man. So this film, it's more in the same. It's difficult as all get out. It has the paperback test in here, too. Um, so James Batch Dale as James Lozombra. Marin Ireland is Nora Quayle. Um, Stephen Root is Arthur Parsons. Joel Courtney as Brandon Mabum, which, no, yeah. Um, Samantha Logan is the only, well, actually, she's one of the black characters there, um, are in the film, and she plays Devara Walsh. Robert Arameo, who was in that one show, Dang it, I forgot the name of the movie, but Robert Arameo, um, who played a creep in a film, was it last year that I reviewed? Anyway, Robert Arameo seems to have a penchant for playing creeps um, in films because he's a creep in this one too, and his name is Garrett. Um, Sasha Frolova plays Amanda Quayle. And yeah, so Amanda Quayle is Nora Quayle's daughter. And Nora and Amanda are neighbors of James Ozombra, who uh, is grieving the loss of his wife and two kids, or wife and son, um, while uh, Nora is also grieving the loss of her husband, um, Amanda's father. Anyway, I'm still going to, I'm going to be so mad. I cannot remember the name 
of the that famous trans man that that oh my gosh it's right there on the tip of my tongue anyway i'm gonna let it go but every time i look at mar marin ireland i think of that storyline that i was not expecting from the umbrella academy that i thought was refreshing um even though oh and that you know the thing that i like about it the most so the character you guys know what i'm talking about it's just i'm just at this point i'm just sharing the character or the per the actor who is whose name I cannot remember, who came out as trans, was always trans, but came out publicly as trans um, during the pandemic. They changed their name to reflect their new name, their give their chosen name, so uh, the production company. So they went through and changed it all, which. I think that's wonderful because I can remember a couple of years ago, Laverne Cox, if you looked up her IMDb, and, and I only know this because I listened to uh, Marsha's Plate, um, but they had her, they call it dead name. I think the term is dead name. The name that you were assigned at birth that, no, that reflects who you were, but not who you are. And so anyway, they had Laverne Cox's dead name in her excuse me, in her IMDb. And that's not something that's, that's, that's not like Wikipedia. That's something that was set up by somebody. Like somebody paid to set it up. And they gave, they gave her dead name. I don't think they, have, they didn't misgender her, but they definitely had her dead name. Well, I don't know if they didn't. Well, shoot, if you had her dead name, I don't know if they misgendered her too. But anyway, um, so we have examples of stars, uh, the examples in Hollywood of folks whose identities weren't totally respected, even if it was, well, at this point, even negligence is still on, feels like it's on purpose. Um, but anyway, so to see that character or to see that actor's name be changed completely um, in all like post-production going back to all of the, all of the episodes where the credits rolled title page and all of that and changed um, their name to, to reflect their, their name now, um, I think is pretty great. But anyway, you see how distracted I keep getting about this movie? There's a reason. Anyway, so let me just hit right on it. So I've told you who, was, who starred in the thing. I told you the controversy about the fact that the studio didn't even want to release it because it received bad reviews. Um, and now to... <laughs> The movie itself, which, baby, this plot is an inch deep. Um, and the premise of the thing starts, like I said, it's very racist at the start. Like, the premise is racist. It, and, and I don't know that the writers intended for it to be a very colonist, uh, a very colonizer sort of view, but it is, girl. It started out... These four four people traveled to Tibet and picked up a spirit from Tibet, and it, it inhabited the soul of one of the of the people, and in turn, whatever that spirit was, um, essentially uh, weaponized the person that it inhabited, and 
essentially took the lives of, of the rest of the party. That is the premise. The premise is these, oh, well, let me just go all the way further. So these four white kids or these four white young people, um, this couple go to, well, let me just give it to you. Um, yeah, they go to, no, not Tibet. It's not Tibet. Um, it's the Euro, they're in the Euro Valley in Bhutan. Um, and it's supposed to be 1994. Um, or not, excuse me, 1995. And the names of these people aren't, well, I guess I'll tell you. So the four friends are Greg, Fiona, Ruthie, and, and Paul. They all go hiking on a mountain. Paul hears something. Only he hears something. The rest of the folks don't hear it. Um, he's, he, he hears something. He keeps hearing something calling to him. So he follows the voice and then he falls into this doggone cave. Um, and then uh, Greg spins... Greg rushes to get down into the crevice where he's falling, which he's able to do that, um, and finds Paul sitting cross-legged in front of some effigy-looking thing. It basically is skeletons arranged in such a way where it looks like one skeleton is holding another. Um, and then the more you look at it, it feels like it's it consuming the other skeleton. And anyway, it's dark, it's gross. Um, and Paul has fallen through this crevice and it's not a short fall. This was a deep fall. And so the first instinct is you see him sitting cross-legged. George or Greg, Fiona and Ruthie think, oh, he must have had brain trauma. Um, so anyway... Um, or at least initially, Greg thinks he has brain trauma. Uh, Ruthie and Fiona are still up at the top, um, waiting for uh, waiting for Greg to pull Paul back up. Anyway, before that happens, though, um, Greg needs to pull Paul up from the floor to get him to hook up to the harness, and so that they can crawl up you know, climb back up out of the crevice. And before that, before, before he does that, um, Paul whispers, chant, whisper chants, don't touch me, um, or you'll die. And Greg is like, what, what you talking about? And then Greg is like, again, uh, Paul is like, again, don't touch me or you'll die. Um, and Craig is like, dude, we got to go. I don't know what's happening. I know you fell. You took a bad, nasty fall, but we got to go. So, of course, Greg picks him up to get him out. And while he, the minute he touches him, Paul changes a little bit and, you know, kind of rolls his eyes a little bit like, oh, no. So you're going to die. So anyway, blah, 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 pulls him out. They're on the side of this mountain. This bad storm rolls in and the four of them need to seek safety. They conveniently seek safety in a cabin on the side of this mountain. Um, and in this cabin, nobody's there, but they have some basic provisions. Um, and even though there's this huge storm raging and these folks don't look like they are dressed for Everest, which it looks like they should be dressed for Everest. They're on the side of a doggone mountain in the middle of a snowstorm. And yet they got like tights on and some real thick socks and some, you know, real a thick sweater with some, with a coat. You know what I mean? Like they look like they should have had a heck of a lot more um, clothing on them than they actually do, but whatever. Um, so they go into the house, they disrobe and all that stuff. And, and, you know, Paul is still catatonic, 
but his like eyes are wide open or like they're open. Like, so he could, it feels as though he's alert, but like he's not doing anything. And then Greg comes to the conclusion that girl ain't nothing wrong with him. Um, um, who's, who's, what's the couple? Who's the couple? It doesn't matter. Oh, Ruthie. Ruthie is, Ruthie is Paul's boo and, uh, Fiona is, is Greg's boo. So Greg and Fiona leave Ruthie with Paul and Ruthie's freaking out. She's like, I want my baby back because I mean, how freaked out would you be? Anyway, apparently, um, Paul comes back. Paul has some sort of relic with him that is something like a whistle. And so while while Fiona and Greg are out trying to find re- provisions or tr- like it's the next day, actually, they find the cabin on night one. And the next day they go and try to find re- provisions and, and, and help uh, for their friend because he's not moving on his own and they won't be able to drag him out of that off the side of the mountain. So Greg and Fiona go out and find something. And Ruthie is in there with Paul. Paul is still very much laying down catatonic. She finds something that looks feels looks like a, a old like primitive whistle or whatever, um, or some sort of woodwind instrument. And so she blows on it and that's an omen. The bad music starts and long story short, whatever she blew on sets this chain off where she begins to hallucinate sounds of footsteps coming towards her on, on one night. And then the next night or the next day, she sees this figure this visage coming towards her in like ratted dark clothing or tattered dark clothing, real tall visage. Um, and then the next day, the foolishness begins. And by the foolishness, I mean the thing inhabits Paul. We see Paul hovering over Ruthie, whispering some junk over her. And then she wakes up screaming because she can't find, she work, she screams and, and is freaked out because she cannot find Paul. Paul doesn't appear to be anywhere to be seen. And she startles um, Greg and Fiona. They're in the cabin. Paul's not there. So Greg, Fiona, and Ruthie are searching around the cabin. They don't find him, so they immediately get dressed and go out. And then uh, Greg is the great idea to look in the snow and follow the tracks. So they follow the tracks, and they are at this bridge. And they see... Who else but Paul sitting at the foot of the bridge with that same whistle that uh, Ruthie blew um, and he's blowing it now, too. And they're like, come on, Paul, we got to go. It's cold out. Paul has nothing on his head, by the way. He doesn't even have a he has his coat. He has his coat, but he he's not dressed to be sitting out in the snow on the side of a mountain. But we're not talking about that anyway. Not to mention this man not 24 hours ago, was not talking and not moving. The only thing that was moving was, the only thing that was open was his eyes. Anyway, so now, but now he's sitting on a bridge, the foot of a bridge blowing a whistle. Um, and all of a sudden, Ruthie pulls out a knife, girl, and starts stabbing Greg, just blah, 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 with Greg, right? Then, of course, uh, Greg is caught off guard. Uh, Fiona's freaking out. Um, and then Ruthie pushes Fiona off the side of the mountain because they're at the foot of this bridge, which means there's a drop there. So, oh, by the way, the foot of the bridge is where essentially where they were in this cave, I guess. They were in this place. They were in this cave. 
uh, no, my bad. They, the foot of the bridge is whereabouts they found the cave where Paul initially fell. Anyway, so blah, blah, blah. Ruthie has now killed Greg, killed Fiona because she pushed her over the side of the mountain. And then she backs off the side of the mountain and, and falls to her death as well. And then that just, le- the chief stands alone. They're just leaving Paul, blowing a whistle, clearly inhabited by some un- an otherworldly being from Bhutan. And that's the start of this movie, The Empty Man. What? It, and the film is, this is, it just blows my mind for real. It blows my mind. Like, why would you think that that would be a good idea? So essentially what you're saying is, ooh, we got, when you go to foreign lands, like you're already starting it out. When you go to um, different countries, be careful. You could come back with some sort of primitive ghost or whatever. Like that's the kind of, that's, girl, that's the premise. Like you, there are other things, baby. You do not always have to include indigenous people, indigenous people or, or different cultures as the reason, as the, the basis of your daggone horror, which is what this film is saying. Ugh. Anyway, and, the, and baby, it do not get any better. No, it, it doesn't get any better. So we fast forward um, to modern times and... Uh, James Lozombra is a ex-cop who is now in the security business and blah 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 he's in this small town in Maine I don't really know where they are maybe it's Maine I don't know anyway um, no it feels like no it's not Maine it's Missouri it's Missouri Um, someplace in Missouri and anyhow so well, modern times for when it was shot. Remember, this was filmed in 2017, so this is supposed to be 2018. So anyway, he's living in this town, and he's uh, former officer Lozombro, uh, Zombra, whatever. Anyway, um, he's friends with a next-door neighbor and, his, and her daughter, uh, so Nora Quayle and her daughter, uh, Amanda Quayle, and they're all grieving. He, the loss of his wife and child, them, the loss of the, the father, um, Nora's husband, uh, Amanda's father. And anyway, blah, blah, blue, instantly weird stuff starts to happen um, where people, teenagers are committing suicide that's that's so this is where we are so we leave so we leave them we leave the hill uh we leave the mountain and where were they where did i where did i say they were bhutan so we leave the mountain in bhutan um with death by this in the inhabitants of this malignant uh uh being right the sinister being inhabiting this totally unaware human vessel that is this white guy and we move to we move to Missouri modern day Missouri where there's a legend of the empty man 
And even when they explain the legend of the empty man, as is told by Amanda Quayle, it doesn't make any sense. And then the movie kind of evolves and it, be, it goes beyond the, the empty man and then it moves into... There's cults in here, girl. At the end of the day, there's a cult. There's a cult piece in this whole thing. And then the origin, basically, there's a reason why these teenagers are committing suicide. And it's not just teenagers. It's ultimately what started as an old wise tale and, and an urban legend that teenagers used to because they were bored and wanted to find excitement in their life actually turns out to be this big, huge conspiracy at the hands of this cult. And Amanda Quayle has been sucked up into this cult somehow. And James Lazambro is in the eye of this cult and actually the 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 end of the movie we come to understand that James was meant to be where he is in this moment and that everything in his life that he knew was orchestrated or at the very least had it was influenced the the outcome of the things that happened were influenced by this cult in some weird way and to be honest with you like so again it starts with a terrible premise. It ends with an even worse premise, if, in my opinion, which is ultimately why critics panned this thing. Audiences thought that this thing was ridiculous and, and the, the score as it is now is barely above 60. It's barely above 60 because it's terrible film. Like there are moments in it where it's, it's scary, but even me, a scaredy cat, ultimately wasn't too terrified about this whole thing because in order for you, name me, to remain scared, I have to buy into the story. And I didn't buy into it from the beginning because again, it started off, these, these adventurous people were climbing on a mountain in Bhutan and, and they were approached by a sinister being. And their lives were forever changed. Well, they were shortened at that moment. And the person who became the, ves- the vessel was changed ever since from this malignant figure. And then it moves into this, this intrigue and then there's a cult. And then there are moments, for real, there are moments where you're following Lazambro and, um, you know, you're really going down the rabbit hole. He's you, you come to understand that the reason why he's inve- he's investigating, right? So he, it's one of those, let's be for real, it's one of those shows where the white guy thinks he knows more than everybody else. And so he goes out and, and then proves himself right. And in the, in the meantime, he breaks a lot of eggs. It makes a lot of mistakes. And oh, well, because at the end of the day, he's trying to get down to the truth, right? And he's trying to solve some mysteries. And anyway, so in the course of him solving some mysteries, he's, he walks headlong into the plan that he was supposed to walk into of the cult. And the cult, I will say that the conversation about the only really intriguing part about this whole conversation was this cult. This cult that, hold on, let me look up. This cult that was headed, where's the cast? trying to find the cast this cult that was um what's this man's name Stephen Root Stephen Root who 
has been a funny man in a lot of stuff, has been the, the straight man in other comedies. He was, everybody remembers him from Office Space as being, the, as being the dimwit from Office Space, but he's also been in a lot of stuff where he's super hilarious. I, ultimately, I think he's, he's got good, he's a comedian, but like he's an actor. He's like a, he's like a multi-talented actor. Anyway, there's a moment of clarity in this film where we are introduced to the cult and even as we're understanding more about its sinister plot, because it, it at once moves from a supernatural thriller to like James uh, kind of exposing this cult and we learn more about the cult and then we come to know that, oh, this cult is just on some other stuff and they are, it's, it, it's a nihilistic cult. And as James stumbles upon them and tries to infiltrate them, um, not in a, let me join this thing, but he definitely puts up a ruse like he's just trying to find information. Um, as he goes through those paces, something of a really good story emerges that they never, the, the writers and the movie never f- fully explores. Like it explores the sinister nature of what we all think cults are. And I'm not saying that to mean that cults aren't inherently, they're breeding grounds for mistrust and and people to be taken advantage of, right? Like they're just breeding grounds for that. But uh, it, this movie plays, goes straight to the, everybody knows that culture bad, right? Sort of fin- scenario, right? But there's something, there was a semblance of something else that would have been really, really great to explore in this, what, darn near two hour film. Was it darn near two hours? I can't call it. What's the runtime on this thing? Hold on, let me go back. Cause that is, 137 minutes and I felt I felt those 137 minutes I did it felt like two hours because there were just places where I'm like why are we here what is this what is happening here who thought that this was a good movie who thought this was a good movie but anyway um so clearly I'm on the side of this isn't really a great movie but it's one of those bad movies that you still got to see because it's bad right it's like uh What's that movie with uh, Taraji P. Henson where she, where people, <laughs> where people uh, keep laughing about and, and are angry about the fact that they don't know how she got off the boat? What is that film? It's like a fatal attraction type film, but like a bad version of it. Anyway, it's like that. That's a cult classic. So this is, or that's like a cult. It has a cult following because people are watching it because it's terrible. I see this as being something similar. There's, I'm sure there's a group of people out here who are, who are obsessed with watching this film and sharing with other people because of the terribleness of it and because of the behind the scenes that we knew it was going to be terrible. The studio knew it was terrible because it was released and, 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 and the studio audience were like, nah, or test audiences were like, nah. Anyway, but let me get to the part where I really thought that it could have been something. So who did I just say? I just said the man's name and it's just like I did it. Um, uh, Stephen Root plays Arthur Parsons. Arthur Parsons is the leader of this cult. I don't even remember the name of this cult. And actually, it doesn't even matter what the heck the name of the cult is. Cult. He's the head of this cult and he's the head trainer. Not the head of the cult. He's probably the head trainer. And... If they would have explored this more, if they would have explored this piece more, this film probably would have been better because this was right around the time where Nexium was really at its peak, right? And people were really looking at Nexium, and it was just when the leaders were being arrested. 
And recently, one of the leaders who used to play on Smallville, who was basically charged for sex trafficking and, and, and uh, entrapment and stuff, not entrapment, excuse me, not entrapment, but um, basically she's, she's was recently charged, she was recently convicted and she's in prison right now because of um, the sex ring that they were running under the guise of Nexium, the cult, the, the uh, well, they didn't call themselves a cult, but it was very much a cult where it was one of those things where once you got in, it was hard for you as an individual to leave because your whole life was a part of that thing. And your family members could not hardly reach you because one of the true hallmarks of any cult is that you isolate your members from any outside interference that could undo any of the stuff you talking. You know what I mean? That could refute any of the stuff you talking. Anyhow, so... This cult was basically nihilistic and basically what it was professing was nothing is real, nothing really exists. And we get a a sense of their doctrine from Amanda when she was talking, when when we're first introduced to Amanda, who's sitting talking to something like a reflective James sitting poolside. They just talk. I don't know why they're engaged with each other in that moment. I don't. I, I think he goes to see her just to check on her because she's still dealing with grief, and so is her mother. And then, but also he's dealing with grief too. And that was a moment where they're just kind of talking with each other. I don't know how that became. I I don't know how they came together in that scene. Either maybe Amanda came to see James. I can't, can't call it. But anyway, there was a moment where she was trying to console James and in consoling him, she spews out the doctrine of this cult, which is basically to say that nothing ever was, it's not now, and so you can dream your own reality. So what got me over my grief was that I could dream my own reality. Um, And so I'm saying they're non-nihilistic because that's the first word that I can think of because it's not as if the, the cult, even in the movie, in the little attention that they paid to it. Maybe that was partly because there was more that made, that didn't make it out of the cutting room. You know, it ended up on the cutting room floor, but from what I gathered from this cult, again, with cults being in the news, this would have been perfect for them to just kind of lean in a little bit more, but the cult was very much preaching, you know, what you believe is not real. So believe what, so then you, because what you see is not real, you can literally imagine what you want to be real. Imagine your outcomes, if I'm understanding it. Right, imagine your outcomes and then they will be. Um, so how Amanda got over the trauma, as she was saying, the trauma of her father was basically to imagine herself un- not unhappy. I don't really, I don't get where she was going with that. Again, that could have been fleshed out more, but I think the premise of it was, here's this cult preaching this way of being that can free you from the trappings of, of society and the, the, the cruelty of the world, which that is in essence, religion, Cults, in my opinion, are a bastardization of religion, and religion definitely has its flaws. If we recognize that organized religion has flaws, and as a practitioner of a religion that is very flawed, or at least 
has lots of practitioners and leaders in that religion who are very flawed that believe that practice that belief system. I I am I'm wide-eyed. I'm I'm in this thing. I'm all in in this thing and I understand the, the all the trappings of it. I recognize that my approach to my faith is that it's mine. And the practice of it is wholly unique to you. Um, and there are ways in which you engage with other people. Certainly the, the text that I've subscribed to um, gives guidance on how you should approach your life, as do most of the uh, orthodox organizational religions. But anyway, I'm not so silly to think that there are not people who are we, I mean, it's, I mean, come on, like, I'm not repeating. I'm not going to even go any further. You know what the heck I'm talking about. Like, let's be for real. There are some charlatans out there dressed as religious leaders, right? Just going on, carrying on and spewing hate and, and, and just destruction in the name of this religion, right? And that is true for any religion. Religion is, a, I've said this before, religion is ripe. It's just perfect breeding ground for narcissists and uh, sadists, it is, it really is. And masochists too, but, but definitely sadists, it really, especially Christianity, but um, it really is. And so anyway, if you think, if you believe that, because belief is so very tender and it's so very personal and, and some people turn to, to, well, we, I think anybody who believes in, in a, has a religious belief, does so as a way to understand the world around them. It's just the diff- there's a difference on how you go about that, but it is a part of their life. That is what belief is. It's an, a way for you to understand your life, to make, give meaning to it. Um, yeah, assign meaning to it. That's, that's what religion, the belief is. Um, and so, and, and that's a very, a very uh, simple way of understanding faith, but that's the, at its core, that's what it is. So if you understand that that is, is, is right for, it's just a perfect breeding ground for terrible people to come in and abuse folks' belief through the system, then cults are even, they're even more perfect grounds because now under the guise of the cults, now you have people doing radical things. In the religious system, there's a, you can, you can, take people to the, you could take people pretty far out of what they would be normally used to in, in changing the way they dress or in, in encouraging and changing the way you dress, change the way you speak, change your eating habits, changing your uh, social patterns. But cults go a little bit further. And I am not a cult expert. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not any of those things. It's just, you know, spending time. I mean, I did spend a lot of time studying religion and I do I still do in my own time but I'm not a scholar in any way um anybody with half a brain could hear that hear that I am not a religious scholar um but um cults I heard it best described I was listening to a um radio lab podcast where they were talking I think it was I forgot the name of the episode, but they were basically talking about nihilism in some way. It was an episode about nihilism. And there was, in the episode, it was 
O3 Bonnie and Clyde. There was a photo, there was a video of O3 Bonnie and Clyde. It was about something else. Um, but uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce were acting like Bonnie and Clyde and they were running through, I think it was Jamaica, the streets of Jamaica acting like outlaws. And um, there was one point where Jay-Z has a, a leather jacket on um, and he's, it's, it's one of those posy type stills, you know, there's, it's one of those moments where you could take a still of the, of the video and make it into a poster because it's just like a, a wonderful, fantastic pop culture, like pop art shot. Anyway, he has this leather jacket on and his back is to the camera and he's got his arm, his arm extended. I think it's his left arm extended with a gun at the end of it. And he's pointing it toward the air or some junk like that. And he's, and the back of the jacket says in the dust of these planets, in the dust of this planet. And basically in the dust of this planet is a nihilistic book by a, a person who wrote it. Um, <laughs> and it is, it's a lot, right? I haven't read the book and maybe at one point I will do. Um, but anyway, and there was a whole conversation about the fact that people use that phrase. It was put on a very expensive t-shirt or a very expensive. Yeah, it was on a t-shirt. It was on Jay-Z's, uh, leather coat. It was very expensive. And it was just talking about commodifying nihilism. Um, and, but anyway, the, in understanding that, having that conversation on that podcast, or that particular episode, one of the one of the things came up. The question was, well, why is nihilism and, and why is it so popular? Why do we have periods in, in, in our history where folks are seeking? What draws people to a cult? What draws people to be so far outside of their everyday life that it's beyond like it goes beyond just a religious practice that this this whole thing changes completely your way of life. And again, I'm not talking about there are belief systems and I, I'm mostly paying attention to the Abraham religions because that's what I know most. So Judaism, Christianity and, and Islam and how all of those in one way or the next, mostly Judaism and um, Islam you change the way you eat according to the doctrine, right? There's a specific way that is mandated in the doctrine that you eat. There are certain ways that you, and, and all of them, there are certain ways that you pray, right? Or there are certain, there are certain traditions that are, not traditions, but there are certain customs that you take, well, it's the same as a tradition. Anyway, there are certain things that you do to worship. There's worshiping and, and fellowshipping and praying and, and in all of that, there are guide, there's guidance in the faith text, the, the sacred text, as I hear religious leaders say, there's guidance in the sacred, sacred text that help you to understand that. Those are practices and they're a way of lives, but there's something about a cult that those religions don't isolate you from your friends and family, is I guess what I'm saying. They don't, those religions can isolate you, especially if there's like a rift because you are part of that religion. But the basis of those, again, I'm only talking about the Abraham religions, but if we want to peel it back, just if we want to step back just a little bit, I don't know of a faith system that isolates you from your family on purpose. Now it might isolate, it might want you to divest from the, the trappings of the world and the fineries of the world, but that's not to say that you no longer visit your family. You may see your family less because you are devoted to growing in your journey, your religious journey, but it is not to say that you 
are meant as a practice not to, to disengage from your family. Cults, in what little I know about them, one of the primary hallmarks of all cults is that they don't outright say don't be around your family, but it's a, it, they create ways to isolate you so that you are not hearing anything or from anyone that would help you to question the conversion that you're fully taking place, to, to, to inter- interrogate what you're experiencing, right? So in this scenario, in this movie, they really could have explored, because again, Amanda, James's neighbor, um, she's in this cult. She becomes part of this cult. And I know the movie really wanted to be super scary, but what's scarier than what's a take they could have had was this young person being sucked up in this cult, following the the, the following the death of their parent. And that's how they were left vulnerable. And then that chase to get that person back in the struggle. But I understand that that's like not as sensational as having this mythical being inhabit a person at the control of this, at the hands of this cult that ultimately targets people to quote unquote, then be the next boogeyman basically, which is what this movie is about. It's basically this cult is picking boogeymen, which is would have been scary, I guess, if they'd have done it better. But to me, the better story is about all about this cult. So anyway, but they didn't go there, did they? Instead, like I said, I won't, I mean, I'm not doing a very good job of talking about this thing. But yeah, it, it starts as there's this boogeyman that inhabited this unsuspecting man on this, white man on this adventure who ends up killing his whole party and then making him a vegetable, turns into this urban legend when you get back to the States, turns into this urban legend. Um, Because I guess Paul, the guy that that the boogeyman inhabited, um, was from Missouri or something like that. And anyway, we get back here to the United States and we're now in Missouri in this place, this small town in Missouri and teens are committing suicide and there's this intrigue, there's this, there's this cult that may or may not be responsible for these suicide packs that these students are taking. Um, there's a really dramatic moment where there's a group of teens that take their lives. And it is shocking to me, but they really don't do anything in the movie with it. So I'll let you watch that on your own. Um, and then we speed past into the end and James is at his wits end trying to understand what the heck is happening here. What's going on with this teenage neighbor of his and for real, what the heck is going on with this cult? Like for real, what are y'all doing? Like what is here? So anyway, I'll leave you to watch it. The end is not super satisfying. It actually, once you start watching the film, the end becomes a little predictable. Um, it is not a great film, but there's good thing. There's interesting and cool things in it. Um, ultimately I regret watching this, but at the same time, I'm glad that I watched it because if anything, it made me want to explore cults more, but not, not because they did a good job of talking about cults, but because I'm reminded that in times of extreme distress 
or when there are wars happening, when like times like we're in right now, where there's a whole global pandemic. And I know that we want to be together right now, but going back to the radio lab episode, one of the things that they had mentioned that one of the speakers that they had on that mentioned, I think he was a professor of social, a, a philosophy professor or something like that. Um, that he had a discussion with his um, class and basically they were talking about why cults are so um, popular, why it seems like it every decade or so a cult pops up and, and, and changes a lot of folks' lives and not for the better. But, but why there's an attraction to cults. And at one point, you know, the biggest reference at one time was the 60s, right? Um, but if we keep going back, there have always been cults. Always been some semblance of a cult. But we have, in, you know, in the 1900s, up until from the 1900s until now, we just have better understanding of the different cults that have existed over, especially in the Western world, over the um, decades. And the conclusion that this particular professor came to was, you know, cults gain in popularity right around the time when it feels as if the world is, is moving too quickly. There's too much destruction. The world feels unsafe and unhealthy. Society feels unsafe and unhealthy. So folks who were raised in society, or not, that sounds very Western, very t- weird that, of me to say, but I guess cults tend to be more attractive to Westerners who are looking for, well, no, I don't even think that was his premise. That's kind of what I got. Because I'm not, I don't necessarily hear of, well, just because I don't hear it doesn't mean that that's not true. I tend to hear of cults in Western countries, but that doesn't mean that there are not cults, or actually, no, there was a, there was that cult in China, was it 2002, 2003, something like that, where they basically, this, the, the leader of the cult got his followers to launch a bio attack in the train on people who are trying to go to work. So I, so forget the Western piece. There is something to say, though, about people feeling drawn to cults as a way to walk away from modern society, which is actually very terrible in many ways. We have all the amenities that we could ask for, but the access to them is not equal. Um, we fight a lot, societies fight a lot, um, or our countries fight a lot, communities fight a lot. There's inequity to there's inequity and, and, and protection and care and access. And folks just want, you know, there's points in everyone's life where maybe some people more than others just feel like walking away from it all. And throughout time, one of his points was throughout time, there have always been records of people wanting to walk away from whatever was modern and going back to the basics. And even if that meant doing things you wouldn't normally do under normal circumstances, you would because the attraction to a simpler way of life is more appealing to you 
than keeping up with the Joneses and not getting much for it, which is the perception. But anyway, um, yeah, that, so again, this movie would have been much more exciting, much more interesting if it explored more of that, but maybe that's just me being, I don't know. I don't exactly know what it meant, but I read a critical review that said, a critic's review that said, yeah, this, the name of this title is right. Because just like the title, this movie is empty. <laughs> and I was like, ew, all right. Well, you've been waiting for that byline your whole life. But, um, or your t- that, that uh, title your whole life. But anyway, um, yeah, you know, watch it or don't. But <laughs> if you want to add a cult movie uh, into your, uh, into your uh, bag, then watch it. But I will say this. You might watch this and you might find it interesting. You might not find it as bad as I found it. I just, of all the origin stories you could come up with, this is the one you came up with. Blowing on a primitive flute. Looked like a bone flute, like B-O-N-E. Some sort of bone instrument. On, in a, on a, in, on a mountainside in Bhutan. Bhutan. It just that's your origin story like you couldn't think of nothing else had to go to the foreign country had to go to where the brown people were wait is Bhutan where brown people I think it is hold on because see I've been saying this this whole time like really feeling myself thinking let me go all the way back I'm almost done y'all uh, let me go all the way back what is Bhutan Eastern, I said the Himalayas. I said the Himalayas at the, at the start of this thing. So it's around Nepal and Bangladesh. Anyway, so, um, yeah, so you go where the brown people are. You get inhabited, but, like, that's your origin story. Only for it to end, and it's just a, a cult full of terrible white people. Which, maybe their ethnicity should have nothing to do with it, but this movie started it. You know what I mean? Like, ugh, anyway. I'm off my soapbox. Um, what did I want to mention? What did I want to mention? Something interesting happened this week. And shoot, by the time I finish recording, I will forget. Something is about to happen by the time you're hearing this. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, I'll remember it next week and then I'll talk about it. But anyway, thank you so much. This episode is long enough. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I hope you are having a good day. And if you're not having a good day, I hope you will begin to have a good day. Go hang out with friends. Go or be by yourself because maybe you were around too many people and that's the problem. Um, take care of yourself. Find some joy. Um, the weekend's coming up. Find some peace this weekend. Do something nice for yourself. Even if that means sitting in a corner and not talking to anybody. Um, all right. Take care.